Hello, I'm Emile Billet, founder of Vestpod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich. And you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. Last year's Money Matters Festival was a huge success, with hundreds of you showing up. This year, we're taking things to the next level and going bigger than ever before. Join us on March 3rd at Coco Camden for an entire day filled with insightful money talks and engaging workshops. We'll cover a wide range of topics from designing the life you want and deserve to rethinking the economy as well as investment strategies and more. We will, of course, be providing delicious food and drinks throughout the day and you'll have a chance to mingle with a community of like-minded, inspirational women like yourself. Book your tickets before they're gone via the Eventbrite link in the show notes. To celebrate the launch of the festival, today we're revisiting the key talk from last year's event. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Anna Whitehouse, also known as Mother Puka. Anna is a leading advocate for flexible working through a Flex Appeal campaign. Anna opens up about her journey, offering fantastic insights on how to become an activist in your own right. She also discusses what you would ask our Prime Minister and what her new manifesto is all about. Hi, welcome to Money Matters. This is our first festival about money. And it was really important to have you here. You're Sunday Times bestseller. You're a mother. And you've been campaigning for flexible working since 2015 with your campaign Flex Appeal. You want to make flexible work uh, the default options for parents, for non-parents. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your campaigns? Yeah, well, I think we're all probably agreed at this point. Flexible working isn't sort of a nice to have. It's not some sort of ping pong table in reception uh, or as it's sort of pegged as sort of a craft ale tap. Uh, it is, you know, a fundamental shift in the very kind of fabric of our working world. And I want to almost stop calling it flexible working. It's inclusive working. It's that simple. Uh, we know from the Peterson Institute, that if you have 30% or more women at the top, you make more money. It's that simple. It's about cold, hard cash. And why would you not want to include, not simply implement flexible working, but quite literally include the most people you possibly can at the table who understand your product. You know, if you have a disabled person at the table, they can say that won't work for us. If you have more women at the table, they say, actually, do you know what? We're not interested in that. But if you just have this archaic Lord Sugar led layer at the top, you know, ultimately it's going to affect, we're talking money, the bottom line. And so that's really the heart of Flex Appeal isn't some campaign, as uh, the Daily Mail often refers to me, some campaign for mummies who want to see more of their Weetabix-covered children. Uh, that was one of the comments. I try not to read them anymore unless I want to sort of get going again. But I think it is that. It's for everyone. It's inclusive working. And I never once thought, you know what, I'm the person for this job. What happened, uh, and I have, like everybody, imposter syndrome, why am I the one speaking about this? But I had two children get quite emotional talking about this. And I thought, God, I can't do it for me for all the complex reasons we all carry as women. But you know what? I cannot raise those two girls to work hard in their ABCs, to work hard in their GCSEs, to be told you can do anything, be anyone like I was, and to have that big oaken door shut in your face the minute, and I'm going to be quite blunt here, sperm hits ovum. And 
that was really the heart of it was I can't raise them for the same fool that I had. And how did you actually start campaigning? My career has spanned, um, I was the junior reporter on Practical Caravan magazine. Uh, so we're not, um, you know, we're not. Sorry, I, I missed that in your bio. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I was like, everyone leads with a Sunday Times bestseller, but actually uh, where it began was on, with tow bars. Um, and uh, I, well, actually, that's interesting in itself. So I studied to be a lawyer and I did my mini pupillage at Devray Chambers on Chancery Lane, just around the corner. And I remember sitting there and the QC had made his son the pupil. And this, his son was saying to me, don't worry, Poppet, um, it will be all right for you because I think they're putting a bit more, more of a focus on ethnic minorities and women next year. And I was looking around and I just thought, there's nobody representing me, my friends, everybody I know, anybody with an ounce of intelligence. It was simply who you knew. It was all about secret handshakes. And I stepped back at that point as a 21-year-old girl, and it makes me very sad to say that, I could see a world where I couldn't have a child in that industry. And so I stepped back and thought, you know what? The only job I think I can do is journalism here because there's a freelance element to it. And um, then I obviously went to Practical Caravan, which was a very big juncture for my parents to acknowledge. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that um, now I am in a room uh, with four equality and human rights lawyers, the best employment lawyers the UK has, four women, from the law, who are, we are all campaigning with Flexipil, taking it to the Law Commission. And I'm in that room again. Sorry. I'm back in that room. <laughs> Fighting for all the other 21-year-old girls who just thought, you know what, this isn't for me because the optics aren't there. The optics have to be there. So why, why still so many misconceptions around, around flexible work and, and how can we change that? Wow, that's a juggernaut of a question. I think, um, so I, I don't know about you, but I'm sure every single person in this room has at some point had their employer uh, say, no, I, I'm, I understand about flexible working, but, you know, it might open the floodgates to others within our company seeking flexible working and nothing to do with me, just a lot of red tape. Uh, so, no. And that uh, is what happened to me. I was working at the L'Oreal Group and uh, I did not, leave because I wasn't worth it. Um, <laughs> just want to clarify. My boss was extraordinary. And I think we've all probably had these moments where it's like, I'm great. They're great. I'm working my ass off here. And there wasn't a, they weren't capable of that little flexibility. So I wanted to come in 15 minutes earlier and leave 15 minutes earlier. And their answer was, well, if we do it for you, we'll have to do it for others. I'm so sorry we can't. And I suppose it's really, you know, why can't we open those floodgates? That was my question. And I remember sitting there going, but what have you got to fear? And I started looking into it. And uh, I saw that 54,000 women every single year were made redundant or pushed out of work for simply having a baby. Then the other side of that was seeing that productivity was up uh, whenever somebody implemented flexible working within their company. And I just thought, well, the information's there that it's good for business. So why? Why can't you open the floodgates? Because people are drowning behind them. And not just mummies, 
everyone. Um, and actually, if you ask how this started, how my how I activated my activist from God, that's a cringe uh, tagline. Um, it was. Do you remember when Instagram was uh, all about avocado toast and um, like flat lays? I don't even know what that is. And throwback Thursdays. And I was sort of playing the Instagram game, thinking, I think I think this is what we're meant to do, and this is a nice filter. And then actually, I lost my job essentially because of that lack of flexibility. And instead of posting about sort of a poached egg perched upon an avocado toast, I went, I'm done. Like I had 62 followers and most of them were my family members. But um, I remember thinking, if you asked how this started, it wasn't some big strategy to change the working world. It was enough. Like I know so many women who've just not left loudly, just dissolved. Like it was assumed when you were younger, it was assumed you would just step back from your career. And I'm Dutch. Um, I lived in the Netherlands and I experienced it differently over there. It wasn't just a figment of my imagination that it could be different. There's a mama dach and a papa dach in Holland where you go back and they make sure that no parent works full time. It's just family's the top of the tree. And I came here and it was like the prize for the person strapped to their desk for the longest. And I just thought that needs breaking down because that was a system that was born in the Industrial Revolution when men earned the bacon and women cooked it. And I was like, can we both earn and cook? Uh, and that was the post I put up. Uh, and I say I had 62 followers. Overnight, it went up to about 74. And um, <laughs> it was like, I mean, viral is probably... Uh, uh, <laughs> A little too far on that. But I think that's it. I think anybody in this room who has that imposter syndrome of someone else needs to fix this. And that's what I think I had. And actually what pushed me to that moment was, God, well, I can't fix it for myself because I have so much insecurity within me about my voice, my relevance, stepping up, standing up, speaking up, leaning in if you're Sheryl Sandberg. But do you know what? I can do it for my girls. And actually, that's where it began, uh, in that primal, maternal, visceral place that whether you're a mother or not, I think uh, you can feel for your little goddaughter, your daughter, or the little girl opposite you on the bus. And I think that's something we've been feeling today. I mean, being like surrounded by women is what we can do also for others if we're not sometimes not ready to do it for ourselves. Um, you talk about being in a lot of room where you know, you arrive, you're the only woman and you have to share your ideas around like flexible work and all these men are looking at you and they're like, what's, you know, what's that? Um, what's that? <laughs> what's that? Not you. <laughs> what is she talking about? <laughs> um, working culture is centered entirely around male biology. That's something you said. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the conversation gets centered on maternity, but uh, we forget menopause, you know, we forget PMT, you know, there's this bio biological undulation that happens in a woman's life that uh, exists and it is factual and it is a practical recognition of that. What uh, I think hurts the most deeply is uh, I think often of myself, I remember miscarrying at my desk and not telling anyone for fear 
that they would know I was trying and then I might lose a promotion. And my thoughts were constantly outside of the fact that there's this woman, me, bleeding at my desk, not telling a soul uh, for fear that it would impact my career. And I think uh, we know, like, this hurts me to say it, but no one really listened to me until my husband got involved in the campaign. And it hurts me to say that. Uh, I was speaking up over and over and I have a relevant voice. I was clear, I was articulate, I was informed and it was only actually re-realised. Uh, and there is a real positivity in both of us being there because this is not a women's issue to fix. But what was interesting, the byproduct of that was suddenly I was listened to standing next to a man. And uh, I think uh, it would be... Uh, <sighs> success in this would be removing the discussion of female biology, of what um, men need, what women need. Stop talking about mummies and daddies. It's parents and it is people. And flexible working utopia is where we ebb and flow between HQ and home, fired up by tech and anchored by trust. And almost, uh, I'm not going to lie, I get dispirited sitting in rooms full of women because it's all an echo chamber of agreement. You know, like I'm like, we all know the issues. And I've often said that, you know, I will go to the BBC and do a talk there and it'll be all women. I'll be like, well, where are the guys who are at the top who are making all the decisions? Where's it trickling down? And uh, it was a really brilliant moment uh, where I was doing a talk uh, way, way back at the BBC and they were very open about uh, the transparency transparency of it and what went on. But the HR director got up and said, it was wonderful. I went to see my son at uh, his basketball uh, event last week. I'm loving this experience of flexible working. And he sat down with all the pomp and brevity, a HR director who feels he's really doing it for everyone. And then what happened off that, almost like a feminist version of I am Spartacus, uh, <laughs> so many women in the room just go, no, no, it doesn't doesn't trickle down. Really glad that's working for you. But no, that is a PR puff. That is hot air. And actually what my husband and I, or myself and my husband, are trying to do is bridge that gap between what companies are saying versus what they're actually doing. And uh, coming back to old Liz, when you don't even have the transparency of where the issue is, how can you start fixing the issue? And ironically, shame, shame upon the archaic layer at the top is actually the only thing right now that works. Uh, so we need that transparency. We need that gender pay gap reporting firmly ensconced. And what happened to your confidence when, you know, you said your husband joined you in this in these campaigns? Because I think that has an impact on the way we feel um, in life also. Um, can you tell me a bit about this moment? Yeah, I mean, he's brilliant. We talk a lot about male allyship, you know, and I think uh, I get often asked, like, what can I do to help fix it? And there's often a lot of pressure put on campaign groups, like incredible, pregnant, then screwed, massive shout out to her. She's phenomenal. Working families, the Fawcett Society, they're all there doing their bit. But actually, 
what you can do uh, is have the conversations in your own homes, because actually what we found, 47% more mothers and fathers logged off from their careers in the pandemic. It is like some dystopian Margaret Atwood novel, what happened. And actually what was happening, and I'm sure many of us have experienced it, is that you look at whose job is deemed more important within a household generally it's going to be a man's job uh, because of equal pay and because of the gender pay gap so you know when you look at that and you say well okay honey well you better carry on working and I'll pick up the rest of this which is where that huge step back happened within the pandemic but question at that point why are you being paid more and actually do we want our daughters to have to be in this situation where that career that you have grafted for is suddenly dissolved, taken away from you. Not like I said, in a dramatic way. It's the quiet drip, drip, drip that happens among all of our friends who convince themselves it's what they want. That's, I think, the hardest bit. Not the people shouting and angry. It's the people who are quietly convinced within their own homes that this is the best thing. This is the best decision. It's not. It's a, it's a position you've been put in by society that's, that is set up for women to fail. And that is a conversation. If you talk about activism, it needs to start within your own home in those moments. Maybe it's not shifting things significantly. Maybe you do still have to step back in that moment. But it is saying to your partner, what matters to me is actually, and I've said it on many a post, this is my something. Okay. This is my something. I have worked hard for this. Uh, it is not being remunerated in the right way, in a fair way, in a just way, but this is important to me to hold on to. Well, your kids can be your everything. You know, that is often the paradox of parenting, right? We often think it's one or the other. No, what you have worked hard for is your something. Your children can be your everything and the two can sit side by side. And there's, then there's the role of, of, of money. I mean, we still, you know, judge because of, of money. We, we value others based on how much money they have, how much money they earn. Well, do you know, when we wrote the financial chapter uh, in Where's My Happy Ending, uh, which was a book I find very triggering looking back, writing it with my husband. Um, but uh, we wrote a chapter where uh, there was the tax authorities were really struggling with uh, this imbalance in terms of reporting. So what was happening was women were lying uh, to their partners and downgrading what they were earning to deal with the male ego. <laughs> so majority of women were going about sort of six percent below what they were earning. We're just going just to make you feel okay. Men, however, were going wildly twelve percent above what they were earning. <laughs> So the tax authorities weren't really understanding what was going on and they started researching it and when we underplay ourselves, even when we are being fairly remunerated for our hard work, we go, we better placate the male ego at this point. And I think if there's something anybody in this room can take back is to not downplay by 6%. Maybe we should go 12% up from here on in. Uh, I think maybe that might be more helpful. And how do you how do you feel about money? What do you feel is your money mindset? God, like the 
there's so many gaps, aren't there? I was saying this to my friend the other day. There's the orgasm gap. There's the pleasure gap. There's the gender pay gap. There's the pensions gap. It's just a gaping hole of inequality. And you can <laughs> you can feel quite weighed down by all of that. Um, but what I love more than anything is that um, historically, and I'll never forget uh, my mum at ironically, slumped by the dishwasher, crying. Like, I remember that image. We all have these moments in our childhoods that are kind of burnt in our retinas, burnt in our souls, that you find quite deeply affecting. And I I probably think are playing out in terms of why I'm even on this stage. And it was because what she didn't have was independence. Financial, uh, emotional, um, and she's an incredible woman. But uh, she always uh, downplayed herself, her needs, her success story, I suppose, which she curtailed when it was just assumed women would step back. And a lot of the time I'm fighting for that generation, the generation who would miscarry in avocado colored bathrooms and come down to dinner and just straighten a doily. You know, it was a generation of women who lost out on independence and that to me, is money. Uh, And that to me is something that is so important to impress in my two girls, because I will never forget that moment and finding out why she was crying. And it was because she'd got to the menopause, she got to 56. And I think she thought, I don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know, other than my children, what defines me. And I have simply been absorbed by what society needs me to do. And I think, we are actually the first generation where we're really pushing back against that, uh, that money uh, is the centre of independence. It is not about success. It is not about red-soled shoes and glass-walled offices. It is about having the autonomy to leave that partner. It is about having the autonomy to walk down the road and go, I will buy that sandwich instead of going, please, sir, can I have some more? And I think that was something I really saw uh, in the depths of my mother. And uh, I want to fight for for other women to take that control and not downplay their success. And this, like, more money, this this flexibility that you can also probably buy with, with, with money and money gives you a lot of choices, it gives you freedom, um, but it can be quite difficult to open up about uh, about money, uh, having these conversations at home, maybe with your partner, with your kids. How do you do that? Well, I think uh, we also need to get over ourselves. <laughs> there's a really there's a big point there where, like I said, I was so consumed by imposter syndrome and my lack of uh, ability to speak up. But actually, no one else is going to do it for you. And if you can't advocate for yourself, then how can you advocate for your friends, your, you know, the people that you love? We all advocate so much better for everyone but ourselves. Um, and I feel like that needs to come back, uh, that that is seen, especially from a female perspective, as selfish, self-centered, uh, centering yourself at every point. And it's literally explaining what you need and how you need to do it. And we do not value women's work. You know, we that's why we've got a gender pay gap. But more specifically, we did a financial report on what a, I hate the term stay at home, but this, what a stay at home mother would earn. You know, if you look at ferrying, taxiing, chef, 
there's a lot of work that goes into it. And it was about sort of £220,000 a year, uh, you know, when you actually weigh it up. And yet it's sort of, she's just a stay-at-home mom. Uh, and it's that minimising of uh, somebody who does choose to stay home. And I, I think that's a really important word, choice. Um, you know, I often speak to people, uh, a lot of uh, women say, well, I'm a full-time mum. And I'm like, well, no, everyone's a full-time mum. You know, everyone's a full-time mum. It's just how you put the pieces together in that. Um, but yeah, I think you need to, uh, like I say to my daughter, although I whispered in her ear yesterday and I said, you can be anyone, you can do anything. And she's like, you can be anyone, do anything. <laughs> so you know, when you think you're just being extraordinarily empowering and then they're like, I'm so done with this. I'm like, but in that moment, I was like, good on you. You've got your own voice. And we had a conversation about how, um, you know, I said to her, you've really got to absorb your best friend. I say best friend, but close friend, Betsy. I said, she might be with you through uh, marriage, through children, perhaps through the ups, the downs, the IVF, the redundancy, all of it. She might be there on the best day of your life, your wedding day, etc. And she looked at me and she was like, um, no, she won't just be there. She'll be the wife. <laughs> and she's like, Okay, yeah, that's great. Because uh, my old unconscious bias there was assuming that she wouldn't be. And so I think, you know, I've definitely opened up my mind that learning isn't from solely academia, isn't solely from the person with the loudest voice in the room. Uh, it can be from anywhere. And um, one thing that was said to me, and I've valued hugely in terms of not just knowing your worth but not changing yourself to fit in with the loudest person in the room so we have all been let's use lord sugar as an example uh you've got a braying uh man and i'm not saying man it could be woman uh either way you've got someone who is bullish in their approach and you would like to say something within that meeting and uh sophie walker the former uh leader of the women's equality party she said you can put a placeholder in that conversation. So you know when someone is like a freight train with their point and no one can get in. She said, just put a placeholder, like make a noise. Uh, he will continue going, but then they will come to you afterwards and you can say your point. So often we're made to feel like to be heard, to raise our voice, to ask for what we're worth. You have to shout really loudly. And I was like, I don't want to change who I am. I, I want to be able to speak in the way that I would speak, but also to be heard. And um, yeah, I've actually got a meeting with Lord Sugar in three weeks <laughs> to say these very things. And I can't wait for him to completely underestimate me. That's my favorite thing, is I was saying earlier, I am underestimated everywhere I go. And it's a tool and it is powerful. Uh, I go into these magic circle firms, you know, wheeled out for International Women's Day uh, one day, um, where I, I charge the earth uh, for it. And I'll go out and you can see there's just these these, you know, it's men and women sitting there going, oh God, who's this bit of Instagram fluff that's been wheeled up to talk about equality? And within a half an hour, it's their own bias that suddenly gets shifted, that we all have a relevant voice. And as much as social media can be demonized, uh, there can be no denying the glorious amplification of voices that were not allowed past the Murdoch wall, yeah. realistically. 
So how do you, I mean, you spend a lot of time on social. Of course, it's a platform for you to also get a bigger voice. I mean, what's good about social media and what's, what's bad? And how can we make the most of it without falling into like the comparison trap, for example, or thinking that, oh, wow, Anna, she's amazing. I, you know, I can never do that. But actually, you know, taking action. I think, like I said, social media gets quite badly demonized. But um, I was saying in the green room earlier, I found out recently that 86% of uh, people who earn money online, whether in Instagram or elsewhere, are women. 86%. And that is not always a choice, right? So I started because I was working for a women's magazine. I was being paid peanuts. I was not seeing my daughter and my career, the publishing industry, was on the floor. It wasn't choice. I googled what the flip of vlogger was and I thought, you know what, I'll have a go at that because I'm not seeing my child as it is and I will I will try that. And I think uh, in those moments that you look at social media and it can be easily demonized, but actually we have a voice uh, there. And I was saying I was taken on by a brand called Heart Radio and they're brilliant, incredible, but they took me on when I was quite a sort of um, happy-go-lucky parenting blogger. Within three months, I got very angry and bitter and started posting and lobbying government. And I think they were like, Jesus Christ, what have we taken on here? And it's been quite nice to get in that way, actually, and feel that there's, when I did maternity cover, like we said earlier, you know, there was a sense of, well, she's probably not going to come back. Well, let's lead with she will come back. Let's actually, instead of following the path that we have had paved before us, which is women go on maternity leave and dissolve, why don't we see, let's work on the assumption that this woman is coming back and how can we support her? Uh, so coming back to your question, I think uh, Instagram is a free marketing tool. It's something that was not there. If somebody in this room is thinking, oh my God, imposter syndrome, comparison culture, social media is horrendous. Um, do you know what? It, it has all those things, but also being pushed out of the workforce for daring to have a child is horrendous. Feeling like you don't know who you are and what your voice is is horrendous. So why not go? It's not black and white. It's not clear that it's an extraordinary place to exist or an awful place to exist. It probably sits somewhere in the middle. And if you are today thinking, I have a point or a business, I just fear this social media onslaught, I would say it's not as horrendous as that. And actually um, step forward, work out your three pillars. What are they? For me, it was honesty, color uh, and openness. And it was as long as every post hits those things, anyone who doesn't agree with it, it's just not meant to be in that space. Um, so I think use it to your advantage because we have been gifted, hashtag gifted, um, a uh, platform that raises our voices outside of those who've been trying to keep us quiet for so long. Um, and I only have a meeting with Lord Sugar because I posted about him and he's like, who's this blue bottle in a jar? You know, that was <laughs> the response. And so to have access to the people who can, to be honest, break out of this extraordinary echo chamber of agreement, that's where I'm at. And I would not have got there without being able to post to everyone in this room. 
I'm hacked off about this issue that I cannot see my daughters go through. Lord Sugar, stop blathering on about filling your office space because you want to make more dollar. Let's actually look at the people within this system that are being uh, pushed to the wayside and uh, ignored. Thank you so much, Anna. Thanks for all your work you're doing. Hi, that was amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> um, I wrote this down just because it's um, pre-warning, relatively heavy, but I just think it's super important. Um, how does advocating for intersexual female empowerment show up in your work? Um, I'm saying it coming from the perspective of being black and queer and it just not necessarily sometimes the kinship I look for in white women and the most essential points of advocacy fades away um and uh yeah I'm reminded that the same uh the white man is also their husband father or or partner so I suppose I'm super hopeful and there's a beaut there's a beautiful feeling in the room and from the looks of the books that I saw I saw a lot of you know, doing and I see, you know, I'm not the only one that looks like me in this room, which is amazing, but it would just be lovely if you spoke a bit more to the intersectionality of, of the work. Absolutely. No, it's a brilliant question. Well, on that point, and I'm going to be very open with you, I was in the middle of a significant uh, public situation where I was put forward for this panel and it was five white privileged women judging other women. It was called the Hello and Next Star Mum Awards and I was right in the centre of that. And I was called in the night before, Rochelle Humes had norovirus and they said, would you just fill in the gaps? And overnight, you know, I recognised not only what was missing from what we were doing, but that the conversation wasn't being held on my channels, a incredibly privileged, incredibly middle class, and there's no shame there, but there's a recognition of, if we're talking gaps, you know, the gaping hole of inequality, that was the one I was not facing and wasn't recognizing. And from that moment, I'm not here to say that I have got it right. I am not here to say that I have fixed everything, but for every moment that I go into companies fighting for the gender pay gap, what's your ethnicity gap? You know, what are you actually doing on all levels here? And in that moment, holding space for anger and hurt at, even though I'm a woman trying to obviously fight for what seemingly is a brilliant thing, I was missing out a lot of people's voices, uh, understanding, hurt, anger that was different to mine. And I think what we started there, I say we, uh, it was, it's not my campaign, it's our campaign, if I'm being honest. And I think the transparency is in recognising that everybody's voice is part of this. And if I am getting it wrong, which I have over and over, uh, there is a door open. There is no preciousness to anything that we are doing. And I think as a campaigner, you can't go, well, I'm doing this and it's all fixed. You can say and look people in the eye and say, I recognise that glaring privilege, but I am I am your spokesperson. I am somebody you can wield. You know, I am with you. This is not my campaign. This is ours. And so when that happened, we formed uh, a coalition behind the scenes. So I have a group of 10 women who kindly, if I'm being honest, because I wasn't well at the time. I, was, I had postnatal depression and I wasn't, you know, if we're talking about somebody having a voice, mine was a bit 
wobbly. But I have 10 women behind the scenes who kindly criticize everything I do. So they say, great, I'm lo- it's lovely that you're speaking about Lord Sugar, but that's really white collar workers. What about, uh, the let's say, uh, flexible working within the NHS, whereas uh, significantly women who are underpaid, women of color who are nurses here, what are you doing for them? And then I'll look at that and they help me and they're fully paid within our team to find avenues. So we, after that moment, join forces with Flex NHS, um, which is another campaigning group who are fighting for all the shift workers, zero, zero hour workers who wouldn't feel included, for example, in a campaign fronted by a woman of extreme privilege. Um, so no, I don't have the I've got this fixed, but my door is beyond open. And I have a coalition of women who hold me and my husband to account. Uh, And I would welcome, deeply welcome, any uh, polite criticism of anything we are doing, because it's not my campaign, it's yours. Uh, So the door is very open. Uh, And please feel free to join the coalition behind the scenes some of it's got a little um you know how we all like i said echo chamber of agreement there's a feeling that we should all just agree with oh there's a woman on stage talking about something i agree with so let's just agree with her but actually the best things come from the discourse the disagreements the wranglings behind the scenes but if i'm being really frank you can't see that on social media because it's not a safe space to have those discussions um so please do join um, I maybe perhaps off this would do a post to say there is this option. Uh, and if I am not speaking to you, let me know. It matters deeply that this isn't just for me and my daughters. It's for you and yours. Um, thank you. Great talk so far. Um, I wanted to ask what can women who don't have yet or don't want to have children do to support the cause and to support those women that do? That's such a good question because do you remember when you were within work and you would sort of just ignore what was happening to women who had uh, children? You just assume, oh, they're not going to come back, but I'm not going to question that. I think it probably is in that moment where I was told uh, this maternity cover, she's probably not going to come back. It is actually having EQ as well as IQ. Uh, Accenture started recruiting uh, on EQ as well as IQ instead of just going, well, this is the best person in the job. And I think the younger generation, not just the younger generation, anybody who uh, doesn't fit into that parental mold can actually case by case go, well, how can I shift the dialogue here? So it would be really obvious in that moment to go, brilliant, well, I could get a full-time job out of this. I could take over her job. But actually in that moment going, what if I did make it very clear her seat was warm? What if I reached out to her, which I did on maternity leave, and I was led to believe that the job would be mine at the end of it. But actually it wasn't that. And I spoke to her and we helped each other through that and reached out. I think it's breaking free from women's networks. I think it is trying to open up people networks, trying to include, like um, I spoke to somebody at NatWest, uh, the banking divisions, creating conversations for managers who don't feel it's all on their shoulders to shift things. It's actually on you to probably not assume the woman's not coming back from maternity leave and to push, well, when is she coming back? How, can, how have we supported that? Instead of going, well, there's an opportunity there for me. 
And that's, I think, what was happening a lot in that cycle. Um, and also to sign up to everything I do. It's not for mummies, you know, it is for everyone. I think my favourite woman I've ever spoken to, uh, she was from, I think, Virgin Media. And she said, oh, darling, I, I, can't, I can't stand children. Don't want children. But I do love going to the V&A at 9am on a Friday. And so she put in her uh, calendar, uh, Anne is at the V&A, 9am, and very transparently owned that outside of the parental conversation. Uh, PepsiCo, a guy called Robert Reetbrook, he said, I don't care if you've got kids or not. What I do want to know is when you leave the office, it could be any time, leave really loudly. Uh, it's very free to do, but just say, unless it's obviously some gynecological personal uh, exit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I might have crabs. Um, <laughs> Like, don't leave loudly on that level, but uh, but own that human. I think, you know, flexibility is always seen as a parental need because it's always parents asking for it. But actually, it should be for everyone for it to work. Uh, and we know it does work. Um, and the only way we're going to break through those glass ceilings is by us all working together to close all of those gaps. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget about getting your early bird ticket for this year's festival, which is held on Sunday, March 3rd at Coco in Camden. Hit follow or subscribe to The Wallet on whatever platform you're on so you don't miss next week's episode. See you next week.